Hello and welcome to the Recreation to Recreation podcast, the show where we explore the stories of people who have turned the activity that they love into positive change for our world. My name is Jen, and I'll be your sidekick on this adventure as we treasure hunt for gems of insight and wisdom while exploring the planet with our inspiring guests. For today's adventure, we're heading to Germany, France, and into the field with Guillaume to explore his world of frogs, fun, and fieldwork. Guillaume, how are you? Hey, Jen. Thank you for having me. Awesome to have you here. I've been very excited about this conversation. I am really looking forward to all the places we're going to go today and the things we're going to talk about. I know that we're going to be spending a lot of time talking about frogs, so I can't wait to just dive in deeper. Before we get stuck in, though, I would love if you could just tell us where you are, what it's like there, and just get us situated in your world. Right. So I'm in Berlin at this very moment. So this is where I work. I work at the Natural History Museum here. It is the middle of July. So and there's been a heat wave going through Europe. So even though I tend to kind of escape to do fieldwork in the tropics, because that's where you have a lot of cool biodiversity and um, species that I I like to work on. Yeah, it turns out the tropics came to Berlin. So (laughs) here I am. Perfect. And actually, Ontario is echoing you right now. It feels like a little tropical rainforest out here today with our humidity. So we are living parallel lives. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Before we get into things, I'd like to ask you my weird and wonderful questions. They basically Mm -hmm. don't have anything to do with anything, but they're really entertaining. So if you're up for it, you're ready. Okay. I feel like this first one actually isn't that random, but I'm rolling with it. Would you rather be able to speak every language? Or be able to talk to animals? Oh my, that's a tough one. Oh, it's actually really difficult to choose. <laughs> I love mm-hmm. people. Uh, people is a very important part of my life. So being able to talk to everybody would uh, also save me the headache of learning languages. Because mm-hmm. uh, I feel like it, it is a struggle for me. I, I've learned a few, but but yeah, what the hell? Of course, let's talk to animals. I thought that that, that was going to be an easy question. And that's why I love these, because I just never know. <laughs> <laughs> it just teaches you don't make assumptions ever. If Voldemort offered you a hug, would you accept? Absolutely. Who knows? You know, he might uh, he might become good after a good hug. That's. I, I think I, I give a good hug. Of course you do. Choose love over fear every single time. Big dogs or small dogs? <laughs> Very glad you're asking this question because I've been recently prospecting to get a dog because I want to train this dog to be in the field with me uh, mm-hmm. as a detection dog. And I've been ex- asking myself exactly that question. Do I want a big dog or not? The answer is <laughs> rather something small, actually, because it's uh, yeah more manageable. Mm-hmm. I do like a big dog, though. It's, uh, it's I like if my friends have a big dog, then I can cuddle the dog and then get back to maybe my small dog later. <laughs> <laughs> a lot easier to handle. Absolutely. And I feel like if you're taking it out into the field, too, maybe compact is better. Absolutely. I mean, to facilitate travel, uh, you'll you'll have to have something really small, like a chihuahua. She's not necessarily what I want to get, uh, mostly because of stamina. So let's see. I still haven't found the right answer, to be honest. So, but I'm tending towards small, smaller at least. Yeah, and there's love for all of them anyway, so it doesn't really matter. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Seeing as you are trilingual, and we already talked about language, what's your favorite word in any language? Oof. 
<sighs> uh, okay, that's a that's a real tough one. There's there's so many words. <laughs> I have to say, there's one word that I really loved when I went to that I learned when I was in Madagascar. It's uh, mora mora. This is in the language Sakalava. Madagascar has quite a few uh, major languages there. So in Sakalava, which is the kind of north west part of Madagascar. More and more, I mean, it's kind of slowly, slowly. Mm. And I don't know if that's absolutely true, but I, it seemed to me to be both a word and a way of life, mm. uh, which I absolutely love. That was my kind of island life part of my <laughs> journey. So I was living on an island there for seven months and more and more was, was the way. Yeah, I absolutely love that for sure. Didn't take you that long to think of. <laughs> I had to pick one, you know, I'm sure there's others, <laughs> but that <laughs> no, of one course. Had, a, had an impact somehow. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a great one. That's, I'm going to take that forward into my life now, every day. If I, knew, I have to say, if I knew more German, I would probably have chosen a German word because they have excellent words that illustrate concepts that we don't have in other languages. But unfortunately, uh, despite being in Berlin for six years now, I don't speak German very well, so... <laughs> you can share those with me later, and I would love to know what they All right. are. Yes. So, what is your favorite sport, and why? Oh well, I can tell you. I played. I played it just a few hours ago. I uh, I love basketball, and this is very fitting, actually, given you chose the word fun for for this episode. Mm -hmm. I actually started getting back to basketball because I remembered as a kid this is this is what I was doing for fun. Like I would just go outside playing uh, just by myself, just like shooting. But I remember I was just sweating so much by the end of it i was really going for it yeah it was a few years ago I, I decided to get back to that i was like you know what i was having fun then and i'm still having fun now doing this yeah really got into basketball recently i love that and there's like a good group of people that you obviously play with yeah it's actually what i like about it also here in berlin there's a lot of places to to play like public spaces with a hoop uh, usually, uh, even the mesh is uh, made of chain so that it's durable. And you just go there. There's lots of people, like most people, like you don't know anyone and people still end up playing together. I, I love it. I'm sure you have this in other cities and in Berlin in the summer. It's uh, yeah, basketball, ping pong. There's a lot of sports being played outside by everybody. <laughs> yeah, that's so cool. I sort of just like show up and see who else shows up. Yeah, everybody's having fun. I remember going into sports at some point. I started going running because that's what you do when you hit 30, right? You go, you go for a run. <laughs> and I just, I have to say, I, it's not like I, I don't, don't dislike running. Sometimes I do like going for a good run and, you know, you end it with a, a big sprint, you know, and you're like you know, mm -hmm. happy with uh, maybe you, you, you beat yourself, you know, from the last time that you did. I kind of like that because I'm quite a competitive person. But I also remember, you know what? I'm not having fun. This is not mm -hmm. fun for me. And mm -hmm. I know it is for some people, but I have to choose something that is really driving me. So that's how I chose basketball. Yeah. And I think, you know, running can also be a, a social activity if you're running in a group or something like that. But it, as you said, that solo challenge of I'm going to, you know, PB my next run or whatever it is. No, I have to say, I never ran, I never went running in a big group, but uh, there are these, these people do this a lot in Berlin. I'm sure they do it also. Uh, where you are well it's just a group of people they put some big like they put loud music and they just run all together that looks quite fun i have to say like they're just going for it just like like uh, warrior mode some heavy metal and or something else maybe and, this and, could transform running for you on your next you I know might, I have to give it a try. 
<laughs> awesome. Amazing. And we're going to talk about a lot more of the topic fun as we get through this conversation, because it is something yeah. that comes up time and time again for both of us. Mm-hmm. It's basically a priority. So I'm excited to explore that a little bit more. I do have one more final weird and wonderful question, which is, how would you rate your karaoke skills from one to 10? One being non-existent, 10 mm. being professional. I'll say I'm a five. I'm average mm. at best. I love karaoke. Uh, my voice is okay. Not not amazing. I think to score a lot of points for karaoke, it's not just about the singing. There's uh, I have this friend that I know from the museum, actually. He's a paleontologist. And we used to do these karaoke nights sometimes. He sings, he's the worst voice I've ever heard. Like, he cannot sing. <laughs> I hope he hears, he listens to that episode. Maybe he will laugh. I'm pretty sure he, I, I hope he's aware of it, but he loves well, it. he will so be now. Much. Yeah, right? <laughs> so it was just like a, yeah, breaking the news to him. No, no, no. So he cannot really sing in tune, uh, which is fine, but it's just that his presence on stage mm-hmm. is so good. And I feel like with karaoke, this is also so important. And it's so nice to see him do it, actually. And he'll sing song after song. But it's so entertaining and so nice also to see how much he loves it. And that's a skill. You know, I don't have, I'm not a stage person like that, you know. (laughs) Yeah, I love that answer. And yes, I, I hope your friend does hear this. And I hope that he takes that as a massive compliment because it is. Because you're oh, absolutely he better, right. He better because, yeah, it really, yeah. It's, uh, he's like a showman. It's like he's done, he's like he, he's been doing this his whole life. He's like a rock star when he takes the mic. He will, like, he'll go to people, have them sing with him, you know, give them the mic. And go through <laughs> the audience, like just the whole thing, you know. <laughs> I love that. And you know, that's something that comes naturally to some people and they just need the stage to do it. It doesn't matter what that stage is. For him, it's karaoke. Maybe he'll find that in another part of his life as well. We don't know. But as long as you're enjoying it, he's enjoying it. Exactly. It's uh, And also, if if you're having fun, I mean, we keep going back to that already, but Mm -hmm. uh, that's the most important. You're going to be doing, like, he's doing great because he's having fun. You know, if he was so much in his head, low thinking, oh my God, I'm not singing in tune. You would just, he would never come on stage. Well, and I think that's a good lesson actually for all of us to sort of not take things so seriously and realize that you can succeed at something without having all of the talent. And I say that in inverted commas, because it's just about bringing the passion for whatever it is. Absolutely. And then we all need to sort of take a little step back and sort of redefine what success means personally. That's how I feel about things. And with karaoke, skill is important, but it's really not all it's about. You're on stage, you're in front of people. Absolutely. And I feel like that's any situation ever. There's no one way to do it. And sometimes in these fun situations, we get to uncover skills we didn't even know we had. Mm -hmm. Yes. (laughs) Ah, Well, as always, those weird and wonderful questions end up being so awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Good choice of questions. Thank you. And now we're going to actually delve into some really cool stuff. So I usually like to start these episodes with a bit of an origin story. So we already kind of talked a little bit about childhood in terms of you like playing basketball. And that's something that you've rediscovered recently. But I'd love to know, let's get to know you a little bit more. How did life start for you? Where did you grow up? What was it like being you? What were you passionate about when you were younger? So I grew up, I had a very lucky childhood, I would say. So I grew up in the suburbs of Paris in a place that has forest, actually, right next to it. Actually, like if you look at a kind of photographic picture from above that town, it's it's a lot of trees. Like So when I was a kid, I was like, I already told you, sometimes I would go out playing basketball and next to the basketball hoop, 
there was a little stream that was connected to a really nice pond, basically. That was, and that's already in the forest, actually. So that apartment complex I, I grew up, lots of kids right next to the forest. So very often the kids, we would just, we would spend all our time outside. So if mm -hmm. not playing basketball, looking for frogs, maybe. And that's something I did a lot as a kid with my friends. So we would spend a lot of time in that stream catching all the frogs we could find, trying to observe them somehow from up close. That was, I guess that was the idea. Mm -hmm. We at some point also tried to do these like, you know, jumping competition. <laughs> um, <laughs> we would put them in a little arena, you know, like try to measure how, how far they jump. Amazing. Like this, which is an official competition in some places. I forgot where people do that, but in different places in the world where they do that as an annual event. <laughs> Of course they do. <laughs> I feel like there's a lot of those kinds of competitions out there. It's like all Basically, this kind of anything like... anything you can think about, if there's a competition out there. Guaranteed. I mean, there's 8 billion people on the planet. There's a million different competitions that none of us have ever heard of. That, you know, if we found them, we'd be like, I'd go to that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and who knows, maybe some of these will become Olympic Games. Right. Later. Quick, quick question. How did you motivate the frogs to jump? Well, they tend to jump anyway to, to escape predators, and I'm pretty sure that's how they would perceive us. Mm -hmm. uh, so they, you know, you didn't have to motivate them so much <laughs> to jump. You could uh, simply, you know, poke them at the back, and, and that's how you get a frog to jump. <laughs> I feel like this is going to be a very educational episode for me. <laughs> I mean, yeah, but I know these the general... I had imagined. <laughs> I'm like, let's just start from the very beginning. Um, to make a frog jump. <laughs> and we're covering all the bases today. Anything that you could ever want to know about frogs, we're going to cover today. So that's I mean, awesome. People do, and the, I have to say, because you know, I, I literally work with other frog scientists. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. But if I talk to someone who has no idea about frogs, generally speaking, people always ask the, the best questions and things you really didn't think about, like, I think the question I get the most actually from people usually involves licking frogs and the effects mm -hmm. of licking frogs or asking me if I've ever done that. <laughs> I, I like these questions. I love them. I mean, we can have an on the air confession key. Have you ever licked a frog? I have never licked a frog, I have to say. Okay. Oh. You heard it here first, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> In a lot of cases, if you lick a frog, especially if it has toxins, uh, you might just get a bad stomach ache uh some of them can kill you also but of right. course that's not well, that's not mo most of them will not of course so i see just like as a psa for everybody just don't don't lick frogs don't lick toads maybe just don't lick anything that you know it's usually a good idea not to lick things yeah <laughs> yeah better know the consequence before licking anything just do Absolutely. your homework do your homework you know know what's what make wise decisions as much as you can. Exactly. So, <laughs> <laughs> returning back just quickly to childhood, I find that's really interesting about growing up. You were saying the suburbs of Paris, but was it like a town? Or it's a town it where there's not that many people. When I, by the, when I was growing up, we were 10,000 people in that town, but it's close enough to Paris that I don't know, not quite a village, you know, an isolated village from the, from the city, but yeah, not quite the craze of Paris either. Mm -hmm. And so nice um, to have that, na that natural part of the world near you. 
Oh, that was essential, I think, for my for yeah for the interests that I developed. I I don't know what would have happened, of course, what kind of decisions I would have made without growing up in that place. But yeah, like the, the your your environment influences a lot about who you are. And going around the forest catching frogs like a feral cat that I was at the time that of course had a huge influence. And of course, it was yeah a, a massive privilege to have this kind of childhood, right? I had nothing to worry about. I just I was just outside playing and catching frogs, basically. Absolutely. And so I would I normally ask people about whether you know how they got into what they're doing, light bulb moments, you know, slow burn, or like forever and always. And I feel like today, forever and always, pretty much like is the foundation that frogs have been. A yeah. part of your life it is yeah dominate absolutely forever and always it was kind of funny to me actually growing up and having this passion for uh, amphibians and reptiles if i would go on holiday i would spend my entire time going around trying to catch lizards basically or frogs yeah realizing that not everybody had that weird passion <laughs> i actually assumed that everybody just loved frogs and lizards and uh, if i if i would spot one as a kid i would actually make sure not to tell anyone because i would be afraid that they would catch it before me or something and mm. keep it for themselves <laughs> then i realized i was the weirdo so no 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 <laughs> we're just passionate um, about what we're passionate about exactly we're that's passionate very different about what we're so it has been forever and always absolutely it's always been in there uh, it was amazing for me to meet people later on that had basically the same origin story they're from completely different places. I have some very close friends of mine in India, for example. It's just same same story. It's like you ask the same question, <laughs> they'll give you mm -hmm. the same answer, although they grew up in a completely different part of the world. And it's like this a lot of the time with herpetologists. Mm -hmm. So these are scientists like me who study reptiles and amphibians. But they, there is a bit of a light bulb moment as well, I have to say. when I, I knew I was interested in, in that, but I didn't know I could do this as a job, actually. It was difficult, actually, for me to, to actually know what I wanted to do. I was, so I was kind of back and forth. The most obvious thing to me is, like, okay, you want to work with animals, so I'm going to be a vet, right? So mm -hmm. I even did like a, sometimes at school, you have to do like a few days internship, you know, to kind of discover the, the workplace. So I did sure. this. Yeah, I did this with a vet and it was cats and dogs and I found it extremely boring, I mm -hmm. have to say. <laughs> But I, I, of course, I see the appeal, but I was saying, okay, that's not what I want to do. Then I, yeah, then I found other job that may have fitted until I read a book by a herpetologist. And I was like, this person is a herpetologist, you know, I was like about the author part. I was like, oh, what is that? I look it up and I realize, wait, <laughs> that's why that's, that's, uh, that's amazing. That's, uh, there's a job for this there's a so, whole career pathway here <laughs> exactly and uh but i mean i don't know it's not actually obvious like you like something who's to say there's gonna be a, a way to actually make a living out of mm -hmm. it right and i yeah i'm very grateful that we live in a world where we can actually still ask questions about frogs things that you may not necessarily find useful and but there's yeah there's a lot of research happening and and yeah i'm very grateful that we live in a world where where this is possible I never kind of, you know, my eyes were always on the prize, let's say. I never, everything I did after that was to become a herpetologist, basically. I'm really excited to go down that route because I think to a lot of people, when they are younger and they do have that love for animals, your your pathway will resonate a lot with people because I love animals. I want to help put those things together. I'm going to be a vet. But there are so many other ways that people can 
create a career, a profession, and a life around what they're passionate about, if it is animals or something else. But before we do that, Hmm. I would love to just hear you riff about amphibians and reptiles. What is it about them that you find so fascinating? I mean, I ask myself that a lot. And also, again, seeing my friends being passionate in the same way, I you end up wondering, okay, why are, we, why are we passionate about these creatures? I don't think there's a straight answer. And I have to say that my love for amphibians and reptiles has evolved a lot over time, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, it kind of started as this, okay, this is this kind of creature that is, is difficult to catch. Uh, it's difficult to get to. It's difficult to, to get close to. So when I was a kid, it was, you know, it was like a challenge almost. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you end up with this weird creature in your hand, right? That creature at this very moment is having a terrible time because it's stressed <laughs> out. <laughs> and, yep. and, you know, this is something now <laughs> that I'm trying to do less, of course, mm-hmm. because, again, if you love the animal, you don't want to stress them out for no reason. Exactly. You know, you then realize, okay, snakes, for example, a lot of people hate them, not always for the, for the right reasons. Mm-hmm. Amphibians basically going through their own apocalypse right now uh, with lots of species threatened with extinction. So over time, you know, you learn more about them and uh, there's more and more that, that you find fascinating. Then the love then evolves, right? It, it becomes something different. It's, not, it's nothing fixed. But when it comes, yeah, when it comes to amphibians and reptiles, probably partly because they're not as similar as all the mammals, for example. So I feel like maybe it's easier to feel like, you know, if you, if you, if you look at another primate, uh, you might feel a very strong connection mm-hmm. simply because we share a lot in common. We're not that distantly separated from right. the course of evolution. Truth is, amphibians and reptiles are also not so far from, from us, right? Plants, <laughs> fungus, you know, that these are obviously way more distant. So, but they, yeah, they're at least within vertebrates, uh, if we think of all the vertebrates, they're they're quite distinct, and I find I find them very they make you think a lot simply because they're so different. Of course, there's many things we we will probably talk about today mm-hmm. about what makes them so different and interesting. But for me, that's it for sure. It's kind of like, huh? Say this is a weird animal, and uh, let's learn more about it. And sometimes when you by studying something that's quite different, you start wondering about. About yourself, right? Uh, One topic which um, I found interest recently is intelligence. Mm -hmm. To understand what intelligence is, you cannot look at humans, right? Because the definition of it is going to be very tailored to fit humans, beings, right? For example. And frogs, in contrast, basically, usually they are thought as being kind of dumb. But when you think about it, frogs have been around for so long. There are, so, there are thousands of species of frogs or amphibians or we could even add reptile to the, on the, ta- to the table. When you start trying to hear, then, then you start wondering, okay, what, what would, it inter- like, are frogs actually not intelligent? Or maybe they are, and maybe we're just comp- looking at this completely the wrong way. And it's only then that you can start, you know, maybe refining your definition of what is intelligence. Right. Or, or maybe even to understand how useful it is. Maybe frogs are not intelligent, but maybe this just maybe this is just a trait that we tend to <laughs> completely that's completely overrated. This is a fantastic topic. I think when we start looking at animals, there's this pull towards what I like to refer to as charismatic megafauna, animals that get a lot of the attention, animals that are either seen as cuddly, you know, and we should all just learn, you know, healthy boundaries with 
animals and each other. But I find that really interesting is like there tends to be this sort of leaning towards certain types of animals that get a lot of attention, a lot of protection, a lot of funding. And then there's sort of this other side of things where it's wonderful that there are people that are so passionate about the animals that don't always get all the attention or any attention in many cases. I think insects are another perfect example. People don't necessarily feel a sense of connection with them, although I would disagree with that slightly when it comes to bees and the importance to the environment and things like that. And then bringing in that whole conversation about intelligence, it just adds a whole other layer to the narrative that we have around animals, around our relationship with our environment and the other beings that exist in it. How can we not place ourselves at the top of this pyramid, but like in the midst of all of these other life forms that have consciousness, we all have intelligence in our own context. I don't know if you can really compare them. Yeah, exactly. Sometimes maybe it can be very even difficult to to compare, but it's true. Even like in the way we protect the the, the environment today, I mean, it's a very broad thing to say because, of course, it encompasses many different things. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we think about caring for nature, what does that even mean? And uh, and yes, it's true. Like we we tend, I mean, we've been doing this for centuries. We put humans uh, at the center and um, yeah, it's humans and non-humans, right? Yeah, I feel like in conservation, at least in the academic circle, more and more we think about the way we connected to you know what what is our part what is um what is our place within nature basically because we are part of nature mm-hmm. uh, amphibians and reptiles are also part of it rather than thinking about us as this separate entity absolutely uh, but yeah when it comes to conservation it's a uh, one way to get attention is through emotions right and it's maybe easier to to trigger emotions with an animal that is that we can somehow relate to, right? So something that is nice and cuddly, you know, like a, another mammal with fur is something, it's very human, right? We're also pretty hairy sometimes. Uh, I guess we can. <laughs> I certainly am. So I guess you feel empathy for the panda. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to conservation, of course, um, it's not just about how cute the animal looks. Sometimes we also want to know what is the use of this animal. So, but it's again very everything is human centered. It's either centered around how our emotions will be triggered or the use that we might have, right? Like how we use the ecosystem. What are frogs doing for us? Why should we care? Like we're not if we're not finding them cute, if we can't find them charismatic, then at least we need to know what they can do for us, right? Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a bigger challenge to rally people around that kind of rational thinking. It's very pragmatic, of course, versus, you know, sharing a video of a cute animal. And of course, it's cute and you can relate and and uh, you would hate to see any kind of terrible thing happening to them. Mm-hmm. Right. So if, we, if it, like, there's so many examples of this, if you remember the fires that were taking place in Australia. Right. Not so long ago. Like, what did we see? Like, we saw videos about koalas Mm -hmm. uh, we saw and it was of course it was horrible right there there was a paper actually i they estimated how many amphibians were killed during Mm -hmm. this time but of course it's not something people can relate to as much unfortunately so i find amphibians absolutely fascinating and reptiles but i understand why it's uh, it's not as easy to engage people with them right and i think you raise a really important point there around this 
human need to attach some kind of value to nature versus it just having an intrinsic value in and of itself and deserves to be just as important as any other piece, not for any other reason than the fact that it exists. Exactly. Yeah. And then it becomes even more complicated, especially, I mean, this is something I've seen a lot in my line of work because I uh, had the tendency to do field work in uh, overseas, like uh, outside of Europe, basically in tropical places, because this is where you have the big centers of biodiversity. And I happen to study biodiversity. That's my main focus. So you do end up going to, to places that are outside of Europe. And then if you start talking about preserving nature and conservation, you realize that there are a whole set of values around them. There's a whole set of entities that have the power to, to change things. Mm -hmm. The question then is, whose values are going to be pushed forward? Whose values are going to be met, in a sense? Is it going to be Westerners that go to tropical places and we're going to preserve what they think is important? Or is it going to be about people living there and uh, what they think should be protected? It's absolutely multi-layered and extremely complex, of course. And that, yeah. too, is a really important thing to talk about. Exploring places and seeing it as adventure and exploration, but you're actually just going to where people live full-time. Like, that's, <laughs> that's where they live. And this is something we've talked about before, but I think it's something really important to highlight here is kind of understanding that there are maybe new ways of being and operating in the world that we need to be moving towards. And this comes from the same patterning of putting humans above the rest of nature, this kind of top-down approach of I'm going to come in because I know best and I'm going to introduce X, Y, and Z versus seeing ourselves as just part of the bigger picture, a part of the whole, to sit down and have these conversations roundtable where everybody is represented. And I think in some ways and in some environments that is sometimes scoffed at as idealist, but realistically, that is the way we need to be moving forward. Everything lives downstream, right? So mm -hmm. anything that you do where you are will impact somewhere else at some future point in time. We can't just sit in our silos and decide what's going to be best for other places. We can't even really decide what's going to be best for where we are. We need to actually engage with everything that's going on, which can seem really daunting, right? Especially when it comes to conservation, it's very complicated. And there's a lot of different voices that are all vying for attention. And then there's also a lot of voices that get ignored. Oh, yeah, absolutely. This is, uh, yeah, I mean, there's a whole history. The best we can do really is to educate ourselves, to understand, uh, especially if you're uh, European like me, is to understand your colonial heritage, to understand what makes you able to have access to some places, understand your own privilege, and of course, giving the voice to people that may not have it, if you can, right? Which is extremely difficult to do because it demands, you need to be extremely self-aware <laughs> and aware also in general about the politics around conservation and <laughs> the history of conservation and also general sensitivity to be able to listen to other people, mm -hmm. right? Is this something that comes up in your conversations with your colleagues regularly? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. This is, a, this is an important topic. Uh, also, I work in the museum in Berlin here. So the colonial heritage of the museum itself is something that is talked about a lot. Uh, in terms of specimens that were collected also uh, from lots of different places and right. 
where should these specimens be? Should they be restituted to, to other places? Should they be spread? A lot around that. And then for all the people like me doing field work, this is uh, a topic that comes up all the time. It's like, how are you going to do your research? Are you going to be doing some kind of parachute science, which is the practice of going to a place for a very short time, collecting, taking basically from the place, uh, either data or maybe some specimens. And then you return back to your home country, uh, having done nothing for the host country. <laughs> or mm -hmm. maybe you haven't been interested at all with working with other scientists there, or at least giving something back, right? in some way or, or another, or even getting permission. <laughs> so that, could right. the, that could be the first problem. It's like, maybe you go to a place and uh, and maybe you're doing something you shouldn't actually be doing. Right, right, for sure. And that's the thing. I think it's just, as you said, it's self-aware and aware. It's aware of the context. It's aware of the history. And then finding new ways that you can also make sure that the work that you're doing is giving back and is holistic in its approach giving a platform for voices that generally go unheard, making sure you're being respectful in the way that you approach a place and a space as someone's home, not just a home of these animals, but home of the people that live there as well. I think this stuff yeah. is really fascinating. And I've got two questions. This is what this is what happens with my brain. I just get, I get, get excited. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, what do I prioritize well, first? What I'd like to delve into first is the realities of fieldwork, because I'd like to go back later and talk about your pathway to actually becoming a scientist that's working in a museum, just considering we're here and we're already talking about it. So when I think about doing research abroad, and, and my experience has not been as extensive as yours, but we both went to UCL. We both did our undergrads there, mine in geography, yours in zoology. I chose to do my undergrad dissertation abroad. It's interesting to me that at that point in my, and I say career in inverted commas because I still had no idea what I wanted to do. And it's why I studied geography because it was always called the greedy discipline. Like you could basically just study whatever you wanted and it was geography. But I had all of these ideas, these assumptions, which I mentioned earlier, which can be very dangerous and conclusions about, first of all, what it was going to be like to lead an expedition, which I had never done before and was like very outside my comfort zone. Second was the conclusions that I had come to about my research. And then third, the just general experience of fieldwork, which can be very comfortably uncomfortable, i.e. like getting giardia, <laughs> like when we went to Venezuela, having to poo in a bag for three weeks. Like, <laughs> Why, you did it like that? I definitely would say that I learned a lot about myself on these trips and I I did fall in love with being comfortably uncomfortable. So I would just love to hear from your side what your experiences of the realities of fieldwork are because they can, the same as adventure and exploration, all these things can get very glorified. But I think oh, yeah, it's really absolutely. important for us to sort of Let's bring it back to reality and tell you what it's actually like, which is type two fun. You go into an experience and you're there and you're in the thick of it and you're learning constantly. You just have to be flexible all the time because you don't know anything. I mean, that's a big lesson for, you know, life in general. Mm -hmm. We don't really know anything. And so when we're in field work, especially when we're in, you know, environments and communities that are not where we're from. That flexibility and that teachability and that humility has to be the foundation from which we start. Yeah, absolutely. 
yeah, there's a lot, of course, about field work that I could talk about. The the com yeah, the discomfort, for example, is of course is always a fun topic to to talk about. I think the the expedition where we essentially met is a good place to start. So that was the expedition in, in Venezuela, of course. So just starting university, I was in my first year at the time. I think you were in your second year, right? Yeah, or um, my third. I can't remember. <laughs> it was before your third, after your second. Okay, well, <laughs> thank you for remembering my life better than I do. <laughs> That's good friendship. I mean, I just, re because you gave me so much advice while I was studying, being oh. uh, one year above. So I, I know very well that you were one year above me. Hopefully it was helpful advice. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, I think all the courses that uh, you recommended to me. Oh, perfect. Uh, the geography department. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah, because we did have crossover. I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Awesome. So, yeah. So, I mean, I'm not. So just for the people to, who, who don't know, uh, we went on this expedition called The Lost World. So there was so much, and this is exactly, this is so typical. Yeah. Uh, there was so much hype around it, even called The Lost World. Mm -hmm. You know, this is yeah. like, it was like we're back in the 50s. Yeah. Uh, the 1850s, that is. Uh, just like discovering new land, you know. And, uh, and you're like, and people hike kind of here regularly. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And people live there. <laughs> they yeah. Live, you know, <laughs> this world is not, is not lost. No. So um, I was 19 years old. I was so excited, you know, it's like, oh my God, we're going to, you know, I, I felt like we were all going to be Indiana Jones. And uh, mm -hmm. I even bought some kind of Indiana Jones hat when I was there, you know. I remember I, that. I mean, I still have it. It's still a fun, a fun hat. But this is exactly the vibe that there was at the time. So you're going to field work. You're going to some like lost world, and you're going to explore. It's uh, it's interesting because this sentiment is there so much for, especially for for people that are starting field work. Right? Is the adventure? You know, it's like it's exciting, and I don't you know blame anyone for feeling like this. But this is a and the same. This is a sentiment that's extremely outdated, actually, right? And it's something we should probably move away from. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Still pretending to be discovering places when people have been living there for so long. Right. <laughs> exactly. So fieldwork, of course, started like this. It was an exciting experience going to, to some place remote that has been basically left as pristine as before humans walk the land, which is usually not true. What's interesting to note about that expedition in general is similar to you, I was at a point in my life where adventure and exploration was still very foreign to me. I'd only had the one expedition before, which was just like flying by the seat of my pants. For me, what was interesting about the trip that we did in Venezuela is that although it had this lost world kind of vibe to it, there was awareness of the realities of conservation issues in that place and the human impact of tourism on remote places like Mount Roraima, where mm -hmm. real negative effects, not just of the, the tourism side of things, but there was mining going on. And I mean, this is a very kind of common narrative that we're dealing with across the the world where there's a fiscal value that's going on based on some kind of bigger storyline. Yeah. But you're absolutely right. It definitely did have that glorification piece, which, yeah. you know, looking back on it now, I'm like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Not even about like, you know, blame or shame or anything like that. No, I th think that the key thing that both of us took away from it, and I'll let you speak to this, is just when you're 
traveling to places that theoretically look remote from your perspective, you need to really do your homework. Like we were talking about earlier about looking frogs. Do your homework. Figure out where you're going. Learn the language. Have some way of engaging with the local people, realizing they they live in this place where you're planning to explore, in inverted commas. But I think it's a, it's a very important thing to talk about, actually, mm-hmm. this uh, kind of it's a colonial sentiment, you know, we have to put a name, I think, <laughs> to it. It is pretty much what it is, right? This sense of like exploration and uh, and conquering, pretty much. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was very interesting for me later on to see. So I also worked in Honduras. That was my, uh, that was my actually, under, uh, that's when I did my undergrad project. So I was, yeah, I had the, the chance to, to, to go to an island in Honduras to study uh, Spanish-Italian iguanas. And I went back to Honduras twice after. So I did a, a few field seasons, basically. And I went later to, to the forest that's on the mainland. Uh, so that's a park called Cusco. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of agriculture in the area. It's a protected area, but uh, of course there's many problems. And they would be like, they, so this organization would be organizing basically like ex- scientific expeditions, but also to get uh, young people to like have this experience, right? Uh, but also learning how to maybe do a transect survey or and something like that. And there would be also some scientists doing their master's project or even PhD project. And I remember meeting some people and for for them, it was the first time that they went abroad mm-hmm. uh, like this. And I could see myself, you know, back in Venezuela. It's like, oh, I was exactly like this. <laughs> you know, where I had very strong opinions about protecting nature. And, uh, you know, there seems to be a right and a wrong. It's like, you see... Oh my God! There is a, this is happening. Is destroying the place. It's wrong, you know. It's a, it seems very black and white. Mm-hmm. Definitely, I was very lucky in Honduras because I first went in the forest to collect data on amphibians and reptiles. So I was very much inside the protected area where you don't see the people. People don't live. They're not allowed to live there, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. So you spend. You're a Westerner going there. And you spend maybe a month in the forest. Uh, and the only people who you are interacting with are people who work with you. So people who live, who are from villages that are in this area, uh, but they're working for you, of course. So to get like an honest opinion about their life and is, of course, difficult when there's already this kind of power relationship, mm-hmm. right? Yep. So when I say I was lucky is because the it was one year later, uh, that was for my master's project. It was all social science, actually. So I did my master's. It's, it was more about the social aspect of conservation. And that's when you realize that actually it's nothing is black and white. It's, uh, it's very, poli- conservation is very political. Mm-hmm. There's a whole economy around it. There's lots of interests from many different parties. I, my data collection there was actually about the people. So I went to to interview people from different villages that were located in the buffer zone of the protected area to kind of get yeah an idea of what was the attitude of people towards the protected area because often it can cause conflict. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you're forbidding people from using their natural resources, essentially. And that was interesting because then like, there's a whole dimension that I didn't have as a biologist going into the protected area and uh, yeah, I remember hearing some of the young research assistants or field assistants that were some uh, sometimes coming from the US or maybe 
maybe the UK or yeah. Uh, and this, uh, yeah, it's all uh, deforestation is terrible. Like if we could, uh, if I if I was in charge, if it was up to me, I would mm. kick everybody out. And this is unfortunately what you see in in some places. There's uh, militarization of protected areas. There is displacement of people. Um, so it's a reality. It is it is what can happen sometimes. Uh, but then you realize that you know what? <laughs> it's uh, this is this is not even these are not your natural resources. So maybe you shouldn't have a say. And maybe by working more closely with the people, you'd realize what the real the reality is. You know, mm. there's uh, maybe there's poverty. Maybe uh, maybe there are different values around nature, and this is where we need. That, that's where uh, it's important to to communicate and to be curious. So, you know, we we said you know it's good to go to a place and maybe doing your homework. Of course, you can do that, but at the very least, this is something I learned was important uh, because I still end up going to to tropical countries, basically. <laughs> Yeah, you you need to be curious. You need to be humble and aware of your privilege, willing to acknowledge that you don't know. You, mm-hmm. you don't know. The other the people who live there, they they know and they have things to teach you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, curiosity is I don't know, reflecting back on our weird and wonderful questions, it might be my favorite word in English for sure because it has just played such an important role in my life. And mm, right. I think that it is really one of those key foundational traits that is part of being human, is part of being alive. We watch it in animals all the time. They're curious. They're exploring in a respectful way because <laughs> they've got no other motivation other than living, eating, procreating, and yes. ho- hopefully enjoy finding fun as well. Um, I would like to add that narrative. But as a thing, by being curious. <laughs> By being curious, you usually end up having fun. A hundred percent. Some very incredible things. Yeah, absolutely. Um, they are definitely intrinsically interlinked. And this is the thing with curiosity is I think when we can come at anything, even challenging things like the conversation we're having around some very uncomfortable realizations, getting curious about it and that willingness to just be open to realize and admit that you don't know anything makes it fun. And makes these uncomfortable conversations far more accessible to everyone. It's like an open invitation to just get curious about the stuff you're uncomfortable about. Yeah, and so that yeah, it is it is it is good to to be curious. Maybe yeah, maybe also realize that the society that we that we build for ourselves, you know, by, like in Europe or maybe in Canada, we're not always addressing the the good questions. And I can speak for at least biologists going and doing doing field work. We're not trained for this. We're going to these places and we kind of have to figure it out for ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. But you can easily do field work and not ask any questions. You just collect your data and you're doing something that may be very negative, actually, in the long run, without knowing, actually. Yeah, maybe it sounds very patronizing to say, oh my God, these people who don't know what they're doing, you know, but uh, I think that's a reality. It's like, uh, and I I speak for myself as well, that you need to be aware of the colonial history, but, you know, we're not historians, we're biologists. We we spend years learning, like learning about other things, right? Then you do fieldwork and you're confronted with a reality that can be extremely challenging because you're asking yourself, what, what is the right thing to do here? How do you do your work? The, this, thing that you chose also out of passion right mm-hmm. um, but how do you do it in a, in a good way 
what I find really fascinating about your story, and it's kind of cool that we basically covered your pathway to getting to this point <laughs> just in our conversation. So that's perfect. And I know you've had a diversity of fieldwork experiences that you kind of touched on there, which is fantastic. What's really interesting to me is that in basically going from your BSc, which is in zoology, to your your MSc in biodiversity conservation and management, and, and through living out real-world experience on your fieldwork, you made that shift into what can be a silo of ecology or biology into looking at that bigger context and that bigger picture of how does this all fit together with regards to conservation and protecting the things that we love. And so how does that fit within your current role in the museum? Right now, I am doing my, my PhD, expecting to be done next year. Uh, my job right now is purely as a, as a biologist kind of have these two sides of the same coin when it comes to to conservation, at least, or at least to, bi to biodiversity, I would say, because if you talk about biodiversity, you, you have to talk about conservation <laughs> because mm -hmm. of the current situation and uh, the rate of extinction. But then it's also biodiversity is also a, uh, something you can study. At this very moment, through my PhD, I kind of moved away from actually questions relevant to conservation and I focusing more on ecology, basically studying how the habitat can influence amphibian communities. So a community being a collection of species living in a, in a place. So I don't know, maybe I found it a bit heavy, potentially, mm -hmm. during my master's. Because once you start getting to the topic of conservation, you realize that I mean, it should have something to do, of course, with the knowledge that we gather about species and their ecology and how they live in their habitat, also so that we know how to best protect them. But the reality is that this information is not always informing the practice that we have when it comes to actually caring for the environment and protecting populations. It becomes politics and economy, and there's so much to it. It and it's a bit overwhelming and maybe that's also why I at some point decided that okay I would go back to ecology mm -hmm. for some time so that I can really spend more time with amphibians in the field and with purely research questions related to biodiversity and related to these populations. Sometimes, you know, there's connection with well, there is a species, for example, I'm working on right now that is from one mountain in Guinea. It's only found there. It's critically endangered. And I am looking into its ecology. So it doesn't have to be about conservation, but of course it ends up being about it. But the thing is, if I wanted this to be absolutely about conservation, I would have to start really working with the entities that are managing the place in Guinea. The only thing I'm doing right now is analyzing data, which I will publish. And then of course that information can be used later by the right people, but maybe it will not be, right? So sometimes you have to push for it. And I've met some incredible conservationists who do exactly that. People that I know in India, where the practice of conservation seems actually quite different from what we do in Europe. Very often you end up with scientists that actually do the conservation work themselves, but this is something much rarer to see in Europe. It seems to be more separated. I actually do want to take get back to conservation work in the future, because to me that, that's 
kind of where I want to spend my time and energy. There's lots of great people who can spend time in the field, let's say. <laughs> but there's a crisis. Amphibians are one of the first victims of it, let's say. They are currently one of the most threatened groups of vertebrates, if not the most threatened. Around a third of all the species that we know of amphibians are threatened with extinction. So there is this crisis. Solving it in the best possible manner is not about gathering more knowledge of on the ecology of these species. Of course, it's important that we do because we cannot preserve something that you don't know. There are species going extinct that we didn't know existed, of course, right? One example, actually, that's very relevant here. There's a couple of species that used to be living in Australia. They were called gastric brooding frogs. These two species were discovered in the 70s, if I remember correctly. Well, discovered. <laughs> Maybe rediscovered by <laughs> Western mm -hmm. scientists, let's say, because <laughs> that happens a lot, of course, that we discover species that have been known by people for a long time. These two species went extinct not long uh, after being discovered. And it had this crazy biology. It was gastric brooding because it was using its stomach as a brooding chamber for its babies, which is insane when you think about it. <laughs> it's turning the most inhospitable environment in your own body with a stomach. It's literally made to destroy things and digest them. Right. And turning that into what is supposed to be the most hospitable place in your body for your offspring. <laughs> Wow, that's fascinating. Uh, I, I realize we haven't spent so much time talking about frogs themselves because mm -hmm. there are so many amazing examples of species that do very crazy things. This is one of them, but there are many others. It's very possibly Western science would not have actually identified that species before it went extinct, right? It was almost lucky that we did. And the medical community apparently was interested in knowing more about it because there were medical applications to understanding how it can actually reduce the acidity of the stomach, all the physiology around it, basically. When extinct, probably because of disease, as far as we understand, there's a, there's a fungus that has been spreading all around the world and uh, decimating a lot of species, depending on the place. The loss of habitat is still the most dire threat to amphibians. They are more threatened by habitat loss than they are by, by this disease. But just to say, it's not a good situation right now for, for amphibians. And, uh, and unfortunately, we're losing species that are very interesting. And also amphibians as a whole being very important elements, components of ecosystems all around the world. I kind of forgot what the initial question was. and I Me too, and that's okay. I... Stomach to womb, what the, what is actually happening? <laughs> Literally, any other place in the body could be better for this. <laughs> right. <laughs> but that's the thing. Frogs use other things. That they, they, they are very creative when it comes to caring for their children. It's actually the next topic of my research, parental care in amphibians, because they do so many things. This species in, uh, in South America that uses the, the vocal sac instead. So not the stomach, but the vocal sac as a kind of brooding chamber. Marsupial frogs that have a little pouch on the back and they put their offspring in there. They do, every, they do it all. And here we are. We just have one womb and, you know, that's where that's where it's at. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, you know, at least when it comes to mammals, it's our common ancestor of all mammals that was caring for its offspring in a certain way already. Right. Mm -hmm. Which is not the case for amphibians. The less common ancestor of all amphibians probably didn't have a lot of parental care. So what happened next is that individual lineages later evolved their own solution to the same problem. And that is actually what makes amphibians so fascinating, because depending on different of their aspects of their biology, they are incredibly diverse. 
there's over 7,000 species that have been described so far. And, uh, and the diversity between these species is sometimes re remarkable, the things they do. The songs that they sing, the, the way they use their habitat, the, the solutions they have found to maybe not being completely desiccated in the desert or how to not freeze in the winter. <laughs> there's one species in Canada that you have called the wood frog. And you may have seen it because it's quite common. And that species is capable of freezing completely during the winter. There are plenty of footage that you can see about them. And yeah, you'll see them completely freezing and then later thawing and coming back to life, basically, apparently. You don't need to go adventuring around the world to discover incredible species. They're everywhere. They're in our backyards. And we can start right where we are, which is a really important thing to note in general when people are wanting to help, right? Because I think that we do, we feel this call and want to help. We just don't know where to get started. You know, when you were younger and you knew you loved frogs, but you were like, I'm going to be a vet. We think there's only like one way of helping. Mm -hmm. We talked about being curious, right? I think this is the most essential thing about it, right? Being curious and also you have to be, it sounds very generic to say this, but you have to be true to yourself. You have to understand what, what are the things that you find the most interesting, the, the the thing that you're most passionate about. Take frogs, you know, it's like you're a kid, you're at school, you say you like frogs and maybe some friends will make fun of you or something like that, right? right? Because it seems very, a bit weird. You know, this is where you have to decide what you want, you know, it's like, this is what you're passionate about. So just go go for it, right? And uh, like you said, there's there's a lot very close to home. The Some of my favorite species are actually European species. And I, ha I have to say, I have learned to appreciate France, where I'm originally from. And in Germany, I, I also love going to, to places, uh, different places in Germany, uh, looking for, for amphibians there, or, or even or reptiles, uh, or anything. <laughs> there's also some really good birds and mm -hmm. uh, some good mammals as well. Like the, there's this park next to my place where, yeah, sometimes I see a raccoon. I mean, they're invasive, but I like to see a raccoon from time to time. They're really fun, to, fun uh, little creatures. Mm -hmm. Yeah, realizing you don't have to go far. That's the first thing, I guess. Although I do understand how exciting it is to go to places. I mean, there are some species, of course, if you want to see them, you you, you will have to go outside of Europe, of course. Even if the job doesn't exist, <laughs> the thing you want to do, just make it happen. You know, literally like uh, being a herpetologist, which thankfully was something that existed. There are cases where people just end up creating, I mean, there are plenty of professions nowadays that didn't exist 10 years ago, right? Mm-hmm. So you just have to be passionate and listening to, to that passion because it, it's, I think it's easy enough to go through the same stream that the, the path that is laid out for you, things that are expected from you or, or that you expect for yourself. Ask yourself, what is it that is fun to you? What is it you're most passionate about? And then you can put your energy towards that and you may find that there's actually a there's maybe people with the same same passion and uh, maybe there's organizations, companies that would actually be a great place for you to do what you want to do, right? Yeah, absolutely. And if there's not, create it. <laughs> exactly. It's why I started this podcast. It's why I love having these conversations. It's why I have the friends that I have. All of us in our own way, we're just really passionate about what we're passionate about. And we kind of are unapologetic about it. 
because what else are we here for other than to explore, get curious, find the things that light you up? And I know all these things can sometimes sound cliche, but they're cliche for a reason. You're absolutely right. If there isn't a pathway there, get curious about the different ways that you could find a role that might support your passions. You don't always have to start your own business or project. There's often ways of finding companies or charities or NGOs or things like the museum for you that can be a solid grounding for you to basically live out that passionate love that you have for frogs and make that difference from that place. And that's not to say that you'll be there forever, but right now it's providing you with a really cool spot to work from. There, there is a lot of engagement with the public also. So there's a lot of, there's something I love doing. So it's a good place to be, you know, to do research, but also to engage with people, share your passion. Sometimes going in the exhibit and looking at a T-Rex is also kind of fun. Right. Of <laughs> <laughs> and I know uh, you mentioned being basically surrounded by people that have the same origin story when you were younger, you thought everybody was passionate about frogs. And then you have that moment where you realize not everybody is. And then it's taken you this long to find your people. And that's okay. Sometimes sometimes it takes a long time to find your tribe and find your group of people. They are there. Yeah. And that's the thing. You just got to stick with it and know that if you continue to follow the things that you're passionate about, you're going to meet the right people and you're going to find people who are equally as passionate about things as you are. Sometimes it's not the same things. They're just passionate about what they're passionate about. You are passionate about what you're passionate about. But the energy mm. that you get from one another can be really supportive. Absolutely. And also, you, you're, there's people in front of you. You, you create these connections. And, and also, that also makes you realize that you, you don't have to be the one doing everything, right? You say you want to pre- conserve amphibians. You want, of course, you want to go to these places. You want to go to, to places where there's a lot of habitat destruction happening. And, uh, but that's the thing. Because you're not alone, you don't have to be doing all that. And if you're not doing this by yourself, if you are actually maybe trying instead to work with, uh, with your community, essentially, mm-hmm. uh, and this can involve people from lots of different places, different, who are culturally very different also from, from you, you realize that actually maybe it's easier to take a step back and see the change that you want, but with your community. And do your one piece really, really well. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So maybe maybe you shouldn't be the one deciding how action should be impl- implemented. Like the how of conservation maybe shouldn't come from you if you're not from from the place. But maybe there's something else you can do. Well, Guy, this was awesome. So glad to have spent this time with you today. So we've got a couple of things before we wrap up here. First of all, I would love for you to share with the listeners about the cause you've chosen, which is Save the Frogs, which is perfect and i'm sure surprises mm-hmm. no one <laughs> <laughs> no surprises there <laughs> but perhaps you could tell people why you chose the cause although i think we already know and how people can yeah. support and get involved save the frogs was essentially kind of the first of its kind basically so it's one of the major organizations that contribute to you know raising awareness about amphibians how important they they can be for for our ecosystem for for ourselves or to simply spread the word about how awesome they are save the frogs is is gathering resources for people to learn even for for academics not only it's a great resource but they of course also put money towards project to can be restoring habitat for amphibians funding for for young people to study amphibians maybe and something that i like about save the frogs is that they spread all around the world so there'll be save the frogs india save the frogs ghana 
So I suppose depending uh, where you are, who you are, what you want to support, you could actually support different branches maybe of, of Save the Frogs. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, because the US, for example, the one based in, in the US, let's say, uh, of course, the, these will be priority projects happening in the US, right? They Essentially, the things they focus on, to me, are the, the way to do, to do it. It's uh, putting a huge emphasis on education and raising awareness and putting money in the right places and in the right people. That's the perfect cause for this month. And I'm really <laughs> glad you chose it and honored to be raising some funds for it. And I've just got one more question before we sign off. And I imagine both of us might go get outside. I'm definitely going to go try and find some frogs in my backyard. <laughs> oh, well, at least listen to them. Yeah, absolutely. That's one of my favorite, uh, even when you can't find them, it's uh, for me, it's such a delight to, to just go somewhere where you can hear them. I mean, not all of all the some species have a very unattractive call, let's say, and others have the most <laughs> beautiful song. I always try to li listen to their symphony every every day at dusk. So I will go and enjoy that for sure. Before we sign off here, I would love to know what do you think is the meaning and purpose of life, the universe, and everything? The question I have heard different answers of this question while listening to the podcast. <laughs> I have to say that I always found this this question a bit strange in a way, simply because like, okay, what is the meaning of life? Should, is there one? Like, should should there be one? <laughs> so this, this was kind of like my attitude at first. It, very reminiscent of conservation in this in the end, actually, right? It's like, what is, you know, what is the meaning of conservation? And the answer is like, you know what? There's no, there's no true meaning because it depends who you ask, <laughs> basically. Mm -hmm. So I guess that would be my generic answer is that you do make your own meaning, right? And this is where fun is important. This is where your passion is important, right? You're going to spend your life doing something. You're going to maybe contribute something. And that meaning is for yourself. But there is something I do want to mention since this line is from the Hitchhiker's Guide. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if you recall, <laughs> but <laughs> in the book, they ended up realizing that actually they have the answer, but they don't have the question. And they have to figure out the question as well. Exactly. I <laughs> and I, this is a passage I love. People don't usually remember it, but I do because it's about frogs, <laughs> of course. <laughs> <laughs> so, so they end up traveling in the book. They end up traveling to this character called Prak, who essentially was instructed to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, for some reason, uh, then he ended up telling all the truth about the universe and everything. That means he, that person, he probably knows the meaning, the, the question. He knows the ultimate question to life, the universe, and everything. Uh, so they go find him, and uh, once they get to him, they realize first that he's no longer talking, which is strange <laughs> because he was supposed to tell everything about the universe. So kind of crazy to think that there would be an end to that, but apparently there is. His answer <laughs> being, uh, there's not as much to it as most people think, basically. <laughs> and and he goes on saying that he did not remember, essentially that he doesn't remember what uh, they're looking for, but he recalls that many of the weirdest and funniest bits involved frogs. <laughs> so, so perfect. <laughs> I will leave it with that. That is the perfect answer for you, Guy. So thank you very, very much. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been an absolute joy to spend this time with you as always. And 
you know, we've had some really amazing experiences together and this will go down as one of them. And I really appreciate you taking the time to share your passion and to also live your passion. I just think that that's inspiring. And I think that everybody could do with a little bit more of just being really passionate about what they're passionate about unapologetically. Yeah, absolutely. So I had a lot of great people. I mean, I this uh, me being able to do what I love is uh, the result of mostly other people. I have to say a lot of support that I had. Mm-hmm. Um, essentially, that's what I hope to be doing in the future also, is to help people live their passion about amphibians and reptiles or wildlife in general and making this world a better place for everybody. And that's such a great goal is just pay it forward. Yeah, yeah. So thank you very much. Thanks, Guy. This was awesome. This month's recreation donation is in support of Save the Frogs. As you now know from exploring with Guillaume and I in this episode, this project spreads amphibian awareness, campaigns for threatened amphibians, and helps train the next generation of amphibian conservationists. They have a membership program and offer online courses in their Save the Frogs Academy. Join their annual Save the Frogs Day and support this amazing charity in your country and around the world. Whether you can volunteer your time, money, or your voice, we hope you will head over to our Patreon page to find out the different ways that you can support their unique version of recreation for the world. Please take the time to let us know what the stories we explored in this episode meant to you. And if you do take action to support this month's cause, Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Recreation to Recreation. If you or someone you know has a unique and inspiring story to tell, make sure to reach out so we can share it with the world. Until next time, keep happy, keep healthy, and keep exploring.